0: Hey there, Omaha. Welcome to another episode of Restaurant Hoppin'. Today, I'm bringing you the executive chef of V. Mertz, which is one of Omaha's best and most well-known restaurants. It's been a staple of the Omaha culinary scene for more than 40 years. This is Jake Newton. Jake, welcome to the show. Hey, Dan. Thanks to be here. Or nice to be here, I guess. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Thank you so much. And I just want to say right off the bat that we scheduled this a couple weeks ago and i was very excited to have you on because your reputation precedes you like you are a very well-known well-accomplished chef i am embarrassed to admit that before i even scheduled that i had not been to v merch just because i have so many restaurants that i try and get to and i just i hadn't made it a priority and i was like i'm making it a priority too many people have told me this is a great restaurant and i went and you just like blew my mind. And after that meal, I was driving home with my wife and I'm just like, I was excited to have Jake on before. I'm like twice as excited now. <laughs> this is going to be fantastic. You really just like, you wet my appetite for this conversation with that. Um, so I guess I would love to just kind of start off broad for someone who is listening to this and was like me before and hadn't been to V-Mertz. Mm-hmm. Can you kind of just lay out what your restaurant's like and what, you know, a first time diner could expect there? Yeah. Well, thank you. And it
1: was, it was a pleasure having you and wife and in it's, that's the general consensus I think with v is it's been around, as you said, for 40 years, um, a lot of people know the name V-Mertz, mm-hmm. um, but maybe they don't know exactly where it is. It's kind of in that kind of like hidden little passageway in the old market. Yeah. Um, so I have that conversation a lot like, hey, I've heard a lot about V-Mertz, but I haven't made it in. Um, and that's kind of an interesting thing for a restaurant that's been there for 40 years. Yeah. You know, it's still a hidden gem is, I guess, the, the best way to look at that, you know. Mm-hmm. Um and so I I kind of like that about the place. You I know? do too. Yeah, um, I like that it's it's a place that's been for, for you know around for 40 years. It's always been and still is like locally owned, family owns, um, but always has continued to kind of push the envelope in the Omaha dining scene. And I'm just happy
0: to be part of that. Just a real quick note, kind of like you know on being down in the passageway and kind of you know being something that's well known but not necessarily like not everyone's been there like something that my wife remarked upon about halfway through the meal is she was like i feel like we're on vacation right now like it didn't feel like we were in a restaurant i mean we were obviously in a restaurant but like you know, normally you, you look outside and there's clay plate glass windows and everything, and you're not getting that here. You're down in the passageway. And it just, it really feels like an experience more so than a meal. I it's would like say the sensory deprivation, you know, yes. you take everything away. Yes, um, exactly.
1: And so maybe as an employee, maybe I want some sunlight every now and, then <laughs> and again, <laughs> yeah. but, but I do, I knew, I know what you're saying for sure with that. You know, you take everything away. It's very much allows you to kind of Get everything from the dining experience, whether it be you're there to really nerd out about the food and wine or it's to come down there and think about anything and everything except what you always think about or what's forced, you know, upon Mm -hmm. you up on the, you know, top floor there. Right. Um, Yeah. b can do that, which is which is pretty special.
0: Yeah. Now, I was in my preparation for this was reading a couple articles and i saw you described v mertz in one article as an experienced focus restaurant i have an idea of what you mean by that and i would agree with that but can you kind of expand on that and tell me what you mean yeah and at times i, I think that it, i don't know what that means and that's <laughs> and that's kind of like the search you know we're trying yeah. to
1: define what that experience is um, firstly it's like very much customizable um, your experience is going to be different than the table that's sitting next to you. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that that's important for us to remind ourselves about, you know or of is that like you you know a little bit about food and care about these things where this person might, care more about food and less about wine and so we want to be a restaurant that can kind of curate those experiences um within your kind of framework expectations Mm -hmm. Um, now we have our things that we are like our framework as well where we're going to constantly be pushing forward whether it be in cuisine Mm -hmm. with technique or you know trying to find the best uh, all the way down to flour, you know, is this the best bread flour that we can get for the type of bread that we want at V-Mertz? Maybe not the best bread flour, period, but for what we're trying to do. Those are kind of the the conversations that we're having to formulate this experience. And then, like, the service team has an incredible part to that. Oh, yeah. um, We're not anything in the kitchen if our stories – can't be translated to you, the guest, you know? And so of course, like Matthew Brown, our general manager has a big part of that. And then all of the servers, um, are far, they're professionals, Mm -hmm. you know? So they can take what we talk about in pre-service and talk about through the R and D process and, and take those stories and really connect them to you. And that's like what the restaurant does well. Um, and then as you continue to evolve that experience, it's like, we want to talk about, um, the farmer, the growers, the Mm -hmm. ranchers, the producers, the, um, and then, all of those things on the wine side, you know, the regions, the stories and wine, well, beverage in general has way like w- just so many stories. Every bottle of wine has a story or a family or something that you can
0: talk about. And I think that's, we bring those little detail touches to the experience. Mm-hmm. Something that I really experienced or that I really enjoyed about Vee and I thought was different than any Omaha restaurant I've been to is how surprising it was. So my wife and I, we got the tasting menu, and we've done tasting menus at seven, several Omaha restaurants, and they're all fantastic. But at V-Mertz, there was several plates that came out where, you know, it was described on the menu as one thing, but then when we saw it, we were like, whoa, that's not what I was expecting. And then you tasted it, and I remember, like, afterwards, I was trying to write about it for my website, and I didn't even know how to explain like describe the flavors. Cause I was like, this is so new to me. <laughs> like we had like a macadamia nut mousse yeah. that just shocked me. We talked about it at the table, like you served my wife and I cottage cheese. We hate cottage cheese, but you had it in a Parmesan and prosciutto broth mm-hmm. that just made it excellent. How fun is that for you? And how important is that to that experience to maybe surprise your guests and maybe subvert their expectations a little bit?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, And I don't like cottage cheese either. We talked about (laughs) that, which is funny. Um, Like, I'm never going to buy a thing of cottage cheese. Um, But when you do make it and you can kind of have control over those things, you can make the the unassuming into something pretty special. And I uh, have kind of fallen into this, oh, I guess it's a habit where like, if we're going to Like I I talk a little bit about like country club food, right? Like, sure, a country club, and I and I know you know no hard feelings against against country clubs, but like if you think about that, it's like club sandwich, chicken salad, a burger, cottage cheese on like a lettuce thing. All of these things that are like, oh yeah, that's like we get that at the club, you know. Mm -hmm. We've kind of been like attacking those items and really like diving into like on the menu now. It's not on the tasting, but on the other cart, there's an egg salad. You know, and just diving into those things that people think or I think I have a general understanding of what this should taste like, and then we're trying to ramp that up. Like is that the best bite of egg salad you can ever had? Is that if if we don't like cottage cheese, is it possible to make cottage cheese into a preparation or dish that we do like? Mm-hmm. And that's been pretty fun. Um, we do that a lot a lot of different ways we do that and yeah so we, you know we want to we want people to read something on the menu they're like okay i think i have a general understanding of what that's going to be and then just as you
0: said it there uh it's maybe not so much what they thought yeah and you do a great job of it and i know that you're obviously working hard back in the kitchen to produce all these dishes but is, are there ever times where you like sneak a peek out into the dining room and be like okay i want to see how that cottage cheese played over or i want to see how like they think they know what that egg salad you know sandwich For is sure. supposed to be but like i want to see what the reaction is when they bite into it do you get those moments yeah um
1: i yeah exactly i want to i wish it was a little bit more of an open kitchen we're lucky in a sense because if you haven't been to V mertz it's kind of most of the kitchen all of the hot food is prepared in like a closed kitchen environment then we do have like a satellite station out that's in conjunction with the bar so we can we do have a pretty good excuse to be out in part of the dining room so uh-huh. we get to see those reactions which is really great the egg salad has been one that gets a lot of those things, you know, or like chicken wings. You know, I don't think we, you got to come back because we got more things that we're excited. It's yes, you know? good. Little things like chicken wings or fried chicken, um, mayonnaise to salads, all of these things that in like the Midwest or like Omaha cuisine or staples, it's been fun to tinker with those stuff and see guests like, Oh, this isn't an egg salad. And a lot <laughs> of it's like, ah, I'm not going to like that. That's not what I expected it to look like. It's an $8 egg sandwich. And this is hopefully we like it. And so it's been fun to see
0: that. Yeah. yeah. Um, now, another way that I saw in my research that you described the restaurant, you said it's locally sourced, internationally inspired cuisine. Now, just on its face, those are like two kind of opposite ends of the spectrum. You're, te- you're talking about taking ingredients from here with cuisines from all across the world. Mm-hmm. How do you kind of bridge that gap and bring those two things together?
1: Yeah, um, and maybe uh, that's like pretty accurate actually. So in the restaurants, like constantly evolving, I think I have to bring that up because that's like the, ba- that's the fastest way to, uh, for us to evolve. If we sit down in a menu meeting or just are you know, um, wrapping out in the kitchen with some new ideas, it's like, where does it start? That's kind of the starting point, like, you know, local ingredients. That's where we usually start. What's available to us locally. Um, maybe what do we have excess on or of in the walk-in? That's like a, realistic thing on how a new dish is prepared. It's like, well, we um, we have 25 pounds of greens in the walk-in <laughs> Chef that we like probably need to use up pretty quick, you yeah. know? And so we start with what we have and what's available to us locally. And then we're all a bunch of nerds, food nerds in the kitchen. We like to read um, in this day and age. If, I mean, we all scroll through Instagram. We're just, like, overwhelmed with all of these ideas from all around the world. It's so easy for us to access what they're doing in – You know, uh, I don't know, some small city in India, just as easy as it is to access, like, uh, my mom's creamy chicken recipe. Mm -hmm. You know, I can get all of those things now. Mm -hmm. And now that's kind of the starting point is, okay, maybe we're inspired by this toasted spice application from this Indian, like, recipe. And that's, like, the international inspiration that we're talking about. It's not going to be this, like, Indian dish on a plate because I don't know how to cook that I would not cook it (laughs) but I would be inspired by that process and so it's kind of diffused and 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 whatnot through the the R&D process to land on hopefully something tasty
0: and what does that R&D process look like like beyond scrolling through Instagram you mentioned reading books like what are the other Mm -hmm. places of inspiration you guys like to draw from
1: um So books is a big one. Uh, I've been there now four years, so it's kind of fun to watch recipes evolve as, you know, maybe we started that way four years ago. And then this, you know, in what let's call it fall time, we started with some new recipes and then we've kind of evolved those dishes. We're kind of working into a little bit of a theme there. Um, But we just talk about food a lot. um, And that's like the majority of the starting point is... We're just talking about food all the time. Do we like this? We're always just trying to make little tweaks and changes to a dish, even if it's already on the menu. But prior to that point, the R and D specifically is yeah, we read books, we gather ideas, we know we want to change. Let's say usually it starts with small plates or large plates, um, and then we kind of work you know really organically from there. Um, but then we have to. We like to test as many you know you'd like to test this is kind of when the internet skews your like cooks ideals you know my ideals it's like yeah of course we want to test for months and months and months um and if we could we would but why i say we can't is because it costs dollars Mm -hmm. you know it's a lot of time and labor um and then it's a lot of ingredients that we don't want to test those first trial runs on the guests you know we always say that don't test on the guests we have to make sure we work out of the kinks because when you walk into the if we're trying to create this experience, well, that experience has expectations and we're not gonna like throw a trial one on egg salad to, you know, Dan and Sarah, like there's just no way that you're gonna like that. You Mm -hmm. know, Um, So we go through that process. We test amongst ourselves, kind of that like alpha beta testing process
0: behind the scenes. um, And then we slowly kind of unroll that into the public eye. Now, when you talk about working out the kinks, when does that happen? Because restaurants that just have set menus that never change, those restaurateurs are plenty busy. Like their their days are full. So where are you finding this time to tinker and kind of iron out, you know, some of the things in these recipes to get them to the point where you really like them? Um,
1: days start early and end late, man. Like, yeah, yeah. We work hard, and not just me. Everybody in that in that building, you know, like that macadamia nut moose you had mentioned. That's uh Colin, who you know he he he's kind of our floater. He works every station, but if he has free time. You know, and by free time, it's like you work hard to get free time. You know, you find yourself with 20 extra minutes. We empower everyone uh, to kind of use that 20 minutes to test something. You know, Um, if you can come in and execute your list, ask others if they need help, and then still you have 20 minutes, it's like, that's your time. Like, Mm -hmm. What are you going to do with 20 minutes? You could not come in and work lackadaisically and not have 20 minutes and never get to do anything new. But if you do do that, you know, if you do do, I'd say that a lot. That's (laughs) That's that's, all right. That's my ism is do do. (laughs) uh, so, you know, that's a great example is we, we just use every little free moment in the restaurant. 20 minutes is a big deal. You can do a lot in 20 minutes. Mm-hmm. You can do a lot in four minutes, you know. And so we just try to use all that time, you know.
0: And as a, as a leader of a team, how effective have you found, like, that tactic to be where you're encouraging people to... To be creative and to innovate. And then, if they are able to, you know, if they're able to work efficiently, they find this extra time, they're able to create something awesome, mm-hmm. they're going to see it on the menu. Oh, like, yeah. that's really cool. How motivating is that for employees? I hope it's motivating. <laughs> I, I really do.
1: And it's great for everyone. It's great for them um, because, like you say, they get the satisfaction of putting something on the menu. It's great for me because. I can't think of everything. I don't want to think of everything. I don't learn that way. Like if I'm constantly being the one that's or the only one, or me and Amanda chef, the only two that are leading the conversations about the evolution of the menu, we're not learning as much as we could be. So the more input that we get from them um, is great for the whole team. Like I don't have to work quite as hard if we're Uh being honest with each other. Um, But then I get to like work harder on you know watching them grow and giving them inputs, and they get better. And that's what that's what that's why I do it. You Mm -hmm. know, at this point, it's like. I get far more out of watching, you know, uh, a Colin or Maddie or John or Natalie or, you know, Lindy learn and get better than myself slice some steaks. Mm -hmm. You know, I still love that part of it, but I've really found the mentor educator kind of leader
0: part fun. Gotcha. So as an example, I hate to. Keep going back to the macadamia nut thing, but it's yeah. on my mind right now, and, sure. and I think that this is and a good example good. of it. Yeah, oh my gosh, it's delicious. People, you got to go try it. It sounds crazy. It really works. But um, So if someone, someone creates that and brings that to you, mm-hmm. do they bring you like – because that dish also came with – I think it was a pickled pear – there was um, a poached pear, a poached pear, some pickled grapes, pickled I think grapes. it was. That's what it was. And th- there were a couple different elements on there. Mm-hmm. Do they bring you the complete dish or is it just like, here's this macadamia nut noose and moose and your brain is, you know, starts firing. And you're like, well, I could try and pair it with this. I could try and pair it with this. Maybe this technique, you know, brings it alive. Like how does that yeah. process of bringing the dish to completion work? Um,
1: different in every time. Sometimes it could be as simple as, hey, duck sounds good. You know, (laughs) um, and then we're like, okay, let's get some duck and we'll start stewing around that. But with the macadamia nut dish specifically, Colin had the idea of like poached, you know, tis the season, we started seasonally first, it's like tis the season for poached pears. Um, And then, you know, he kind of came with like a flavor profile. He wanted poached pear, he wanted, originally it was like toasted fennel, it was a macadamia mousse, but it was going to be like charged in an ISI and Mm -hmm. not as like, it was different than how you saw it, you know. Um, pickled grapes was a component, and we kind of worked through that flavor profile. So he had these, like, general framework of the dish and then tested it as he saw it once. Um, and then we made changes, and I tinkered with it, and everybody tasted it, and we all gave him our input on how we think he could make it better. And then we made those changes, tasted it, tinkered with it, and then that was kind of where we were like, oh, okay, this is, this is something pretty cool. you know? Awesome. Yeah, and then so that one was, like, pretty easy. But, like, we're tinkering with a dish as well. Uh, like Maddie had this you know those I still don't know the actual name the like wafers where they're like chocolate wafers like and then there's like a layer of like I don't know like custardy like oh, set, yes like, chocolate yes. thing, and then yes. wafer and chocolate wafer well she wants to do one that's like savory where it's like a chocolate uh, wafer that has like short rib rillette, mushroom mushroom cell, dijon mustard all of these flavors you wouldn't like assume to be inside of what looks to be a sweet bite uh-huh. um but, man, we've t- we've had that stuff on hand for weeks, and we're just still, like, turning the keys to make it where we want it to be. Uh-huh. You know? And so it's that, like, the macadamia nut moose might have been on the menu in three or four days where this one is three or four weeks. Mm-hmm. You know?
0: so. Is cool. there a dish that, like, just pops to your mind right now when I ask this question that you're, like, particularly proud of, whether it's, you know, the entire team came together and really produced something, or there was something where, you know, you kind of, even stretch your bounds a little bit, and you when it finally popped, you're just like, yes, this is awesome. Are there, are there any dishes that just, like, popped to your mind where you're just like, man, that was a home run?
1: Mm. Um, my favorite dish, there's, like, two things, and they're simple. Yeah. Um, and it usually is that way, I think, with me. You know, my favorite dish, my favorite item on the menu is always, or has always been, the steak tartare. Mm-hmm. Um, that's on the a la carte side of things. I don't think you... Had tartar that night. We did not. Um and that's so like Morgan Ranch beef, you know, you you did have that tenderloin which was cool. My this goodness. was the New York strip. Or yeah, the tartar that we do is with New York strip. It's hand diced. Um and the flavors have changed, you know, I mean, tens and t- you know, tens of times over the last 4 years. But that always is like my sucker dish like that's my last meal dish you mm-hmm. know um and I think we do that really well in a state that calls themselves the beef state I I've really grabbed hold of like beef and I'm like really comfortable with cooking that and in this raw form I think it was like if somebody comes to Omaha and they're like oh I want like the best beef in the city I think V-Mertz could actually give you that now and the tasting menu which I think is cool Um, But the beef tartare with, like, potato chips and cheddar cheese, it's like a beef and cheddar, but not... um, There's that subverting expectation again. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. Um, But then also, like, we do, uh, like, a loosely inspired, like, Hawaiian bread coconut, like, roll pull apart. You had a little two-pack with your bread service. You you blew Um, Sarah's mind with that one. Nice. I think
0: that, like, as much as she loved everything, she the takeaway from the meal was I love coconut bread now. Like that yeah, was the number right. one thing.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, like, you know, those Hawaiian rolls that you buy, like yeah. orange packs and they're so soft. Uh-huh. And it's, yeah. Um, so that's where we started and we've kind of, man, we messed with those rolls for a long time and
0: that's like, you know, I'm proud of those things for mm-hmm. sure. Yeah. The simple things. Mm-hmm. Now, how did you get into cooking originally? And, and what was the point where you were like, I, I want to work with food. This, this needs to be my life. Um, it kind of happened potentially
1: accidentally, you know, I wasn't like, uh I liked food, like when I was in high school, I did the pro start program, mm-hmm. Um I was interested in food at that point in my life, prior to that, I was like all about, I played sports growing up, a lot of sports, I still like golf, I played golf, my first job was at a golf club, no longer open, it was like a little nine hole country club, Sunset Valley on like 90th and center, um, I worked at, like, the summers there, cleaning clubs, moving carts around, just a cart kid. Well, they had a kitchen, couldn't work at the golf course, so I worked in the kitchen over the winter. That next spring came around, and I just didn't go back to the golf course. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, yeah, food, I just kind of, I liked the competitive nature of a kitchen. I liked that you could work hard, keep your head down, and, like, move up, and they kind of promoted within – um you know it's a craft it's a trade you can kind of really focus in on that and those are the things i really liked you know um it allowed you to be yourself in like a industry that kind of is thought of to be like misfits you know you're just like a band a bunch of bandits like you stay out late you have you know good times with your buddies and uh learned a lot you know fast that was that was a really cool part and so that was maybe when i was 15 washing dishes 14 15 and then just got stuck into it, and and not in a negative way. I just kind of kept going back to the kitchen, kept going back to the kitchen. Like I said, I was in pro start in high school, got a scholarship to go to Johnson and Wales, so I was out in Denver for a bit, and then then I was in, mm-hmm. yeah, you know. Um, and then as you, I kind of found there that like I liked fine dining, I liked the detailed, you know, kind of aspects of what that brings. Um, and then came back, and then who I am today is very much like Omaha chef and based. Like I learned a lot from, you know, Clayton Chapman, John Seymour, and Nick Stryhecker. Those were kind of like Paul Kulik. Like they, I nailed the timing like 10 years ago. <laughs> yeah. I'm 31 now, 10 years ago. Well, let's say 15 years ago, the Omaha food scene was not at all what it is today. Mm-mm. And then, you know, like places like the boiler, there were some good restaurants like Glenn Wheeler, which is another name. I should Glenn Wheeler has been doing some cool stuff. And of course, like Jennifer Coco, the names are, can go on and on. I'll Inevitably leave somebody out, but those kind of four or five people 10 years ago were like, oh, okay, we're going to really push here, you know, like boiler room opened and there was a pig head on the wall. And like, I remember going there for my birthday and that's like, a that, this is the best place ever. Open kitchen. I had never seen anything like that before, you know? Uh-huh. And uh, so I worked with Clayton at Spencer's actually right before he opened the Grey Plume. And so I got to work with him and John Seymour who went on to be the chef of V-Mertz and do some other cool stuff. And so... Um, just nailed the timing. It was in the right kind of nucleus of people who really gave a tremendous amount of shit. You
0: know, they really wanted to get
1: better at, uh-huh. like, cooking, and they wanted to make the people around them better, and I was just young and wanted to soak all those things up.
0: Well, I think now, you know, at V-Mertz, you're helping to push that Omaha scene, you know, further, And and that's something that I wanted to talk about is what is it, you know, and I think, you know, you just mentioned a lot of great names, and maybe it's as simple as just saying it just took people – caring more and really wanting to make this a great food city but how do you think we got from where we were 10-15 years ago where Omaha had decent restaurants but was not by any means a food destination to where we are now where I think Omaha is one of the top emerging food cities and you can I mean I can attest to you personally there's so many great places you can't even eat at them all fast enough for sure yeah it's um I think
1: that's Obviously, those names I just set out really broke down some barriers for a lot of us that are doing well now, you know. Um, And then we've, yeah, we've kind of continued to, like, foster those, like, up-and-coming people and and empowering people to do more, take more, push, 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 you know. And then you get places like, you know, Akron, Yoshitomo, and, I mean, now Tim runs the boiler room and Paul brings Label Yon to the table Mm -hmm. and, you know, all of these, you know, um, all the eco-brand stuff. All these things are kind of evolving pretty quickly I don't know. I think Omaha is like so crazy, head over heels different than it was ten years ago, but it also can go like it's all guest dependent, mm-hmm. you know, like not a hundred percent. Like we have to be there as restaurants, you know, as chefs and restaurateurs, like to be there to like continue to push, but we also have to be able to have clientele present to pay the bills. Yeah. You know, because <laughs> yeah. I'll serve you whatever the hell you want. Uh-huh. Like I'll go as far as we can, but it also has to be we have to stay within we want to create the biggest umbrella as we can, so like way out here is possible. So, but we also can create, we can get, you know, garner as many customers as possible. Mm-hmm. You know? I think it's, uh, I think we we still have to continue to push. You know, like mm-hmm. that's the key there. You know, and and I feel like we have been.
0: Well, I think that plays into a dish that you mentioned earlier is that steak tartare. I think that's something that a decade ago, a lot of Omahans were not familiar with. And they would probably see that on the menu and either not know what it is or not even think about ordering it. And now, you know, you mentioned it's something that you're something, it's something that you're really proud of. Mm -hmm. So how do you kind of go about, you know, you said you'll cook whatever people want because that's what makes money at the end of the day. But how do you like go about introducing new things to people in a way where they're not going to be scared of it, where you can say, Hey, you haven't tried this before, mm-hmm. but trust me, it's awesome. Yeah. I think language
1: is powerful on a menu, yes. you know, and not that we're tricking somebody, but we're just making it approachable. We're not going to, at times we're not going to put words, you know, maybe we we want to put like Sometimes we'll put, like, oh, you know, a French term, like, that palm you know, with a steak. Like, we're, oh, we want to we want push you a little bit because it's a steak dish. Mm-hmm. Ecrasé well, is just smashed potato. Mm-hmm. But, yeah. like, we can push a little bit, simple things like that. It's like, hey, what does this mean? And and then there's an opportunity for education that's, like, that doesn't come across as um, pretentious, you mm-hmm. know, because we can't do that either. There's no room for that, you know. Um, so little things like that. Or maybe it's, um, I don't know, just, like, bending around words a little bit. And so the, the things like maybe we want to marinate oh uh, like a, a crudo with fish sauce that we've made. You know, well, we want to tell you that we're making and fermenting things like that um, or, you know, just taking like high-quality fish sauce and making that into a vinaigrette. Well, like my mom's not going to order something if she sees fish sauce on the, on the written menu. She's just not going to do that, uh-huh. you know. Um, but she'll like that vinaigrette. So maybe it's just like like V Mertz fermented vinaigrette. And then we can have a conversation and it's not just you and your own bread saying our own brain saying, Oh, I don't like that. Oh, I don't like that. Uh-huh. You know? So that's a lot of the things we do is really think about menu language. Uh, a lot of kind of explanation and education from the staff point of view. Like we talk a lot about food with the servers and they're, they know, I mean, we have servers that have been there longer than I have for sure by like a long shot. You uh-huh. know, David's been at the restaurant for 22 years. Um, and so they're, very, they're very good at it too. Like we will we'll give them all of the nuts and bolts, so much information and they can kind of, de, you know, diffuse that into what you want to hear and what you have to hear. You know,
0: now that's something I, I love that you brought up like the menu language, because that's something I haven't really talked about with a guest on the podcast yet. And it, like you just said, it's something that's so important. How did you develop that skill? Cause I imagine that's not something that just, you know, comes naturally.
1: Yeah. I think it's, it's all part of the details and, and every, I mean, so many people do it. Like we all, especially if you're changing your menu every day, Uh you're in the computer, you're on the document. It's so easy to just, I mean, people will go into as far as the power between line four on the menu to maybe line six. If it's like a total list of small plates that has 10 items, well, maybe something on line three, you're still like really locked in. You're excited. It's like, boom, bread is one. I'm going to get that. That's done. Two is like, okay, that sounds pretty good. Three is like, oh, man, that sounds good. But then you're like, number six, you're like, man, I still am thinking about number three. So if you can switch those things up, there's actually like a, a pretty cool like ebb and flow of even where an item is on the menu of how it sells, you know. Um, and then, yeah, language. Like the most recent one that comes to mind, we had a, like a pork copa, mm-hmm. you know. And so copa is this what's traditionally like a, you know, made into dry... Dry cured ham, but it comes from like basically the neck region, like, you know, the upper shoulder, and it's just really cool, like lots of intramuscular fat, and we we like slow cook it, and it almost eats like pork belly. Um, and I, I initially, it was just like it just read pork Copa steak, right? And so we didn't, it didn't sell, this sold like shit, like nobody bought it. Like, <laughs> this is so good, it's just like this crazy hazelnut fed pork. Like, why isn't, it, why aren't people ordering? It? Well, then I said that out loud to the server. And, or to Jill, actually, our owner, and she's like, "Well, you gotta put hazelnut fed." I, like, well, that just sounds so cool. I was like, "Okay," like I was just kind of stubborn about it. I was like, "Yeah, okay, we'll see what that does." And again, that next day, same price point, same dish, everything was the same. We just put hazelnut fed in front of what was already pork copa steak, and we sold like fifteen of them. Oh my gosh, it's crazy. Yeah, and so powerful. Uh huh. Yeah, and so to really. Take yourself out of what you know, your little chef perspective world, and like this is the way I want to do it, and this is what it has to read, and really put yourself into the guest perspective. You can, you can it can be really powerful.
0: Yeah. Wow, that is fascinating. Um, getting back to kind of like the Omaha food scene, mm. your yeah, reintroduction right. to it, you were actually, and, and correct me if I can get any of this wrong, but from what I've researched, you were actually working under a James Beard Award winner, uh-huh. uh, Mike Lotta, mm-hmm. at the time. And you got a call from V Mertz General Manager Matthew Brown, who you referenced earlier, and he asked you to come back to Omaha and work at V Mertz. What was your initial thought there? I mean, you're like you're out working for a very famous, well-known chef. You're clearly making your way in the world. Like we haven't talked about this, but I know you've tra- you traveled all over America, you traveled all over Europe, and you get the call to come back to Omaha. Mm. Is the initial thought like? Excitement? Is it kind of like, oh, am I just going back home? Is that taking a step back? Where did your mind go? Uh, excitement.
1: Yeah, it was quick too. Yeah, um, and I was having fun in Charleston. I really was. I was. I mean, I'm a Midwestern kid. I lived a couple blocks from the ocean. My days off were like bottle of whiskey, cold fried chicken, sit on the beach. Like, sounds like heaven. <laughs> sounds pretty good. And it was. It was that. It was very good. You know. Um, and I was learning a lot. Like in that. Like under Mike Lotta and uh, Vandy was the chef de cuisine there and a couple other people in that restaurant group that are just incredibly smart, uh, hardworking individuals. I was getting a lot out of that job, you know, and uh, really finding my way there. And then I got that call and I had worked at Vmertz. This is kind of my second tour, mm-hmm. as I like to say. Mm-hmm. And so I had worked there before. I kind of fell in love with the restaurant. It was like, I mean, it is like a, a landmark, mm-hmm. almost a little treasure to me in the Omaha market and in the Omaha food scene. And it was a big deal job, you know, and so... Uh, I knew I wanted to work with Matt and I wanted to be a part of that kind of Omaha food tradition, you mm-hmm. know, I wanted to be, I wanted to come back and see if we could make it as the best, as best it's ever been. That was like my thing It's like, okay, I'll come back. And i had this really long, like multi-year plan, like all this huge, just document that I worked just like day and night on and how I could like build it up to be, I just wanted it to be the best that I had ever been in 40 years, you know? Um, and that was exciting. I wanted to do that in Omaha, where it was just like, like I told you, I worked here. I was raised by Omaha chefs. I learned a lot from the people here, both in the front and back of the house. My whole family's here. And so, yeah, I I, I skedaddled
0: back here pretty quick. Well, we're lucky to have you. Um, you know, you, you mentioned you clearly had a reverence for this restaurant coming in, having worked there, having dined there. You very, mu- you very much knew what V-Mertz was and its place in the Omaha food scene. Was that intimidating at all to be like, that's V Mertz, and now I'm like I'm the guy there. Like, is there any intimidation to that? Or it sounds like you just kind of dove in and you were like, Yeah, I got this.
1: Um, I, I definitely didn't say that. Like I wouldn't I yeah, I was scared, you yeah. know. Um I wanted to not like scared, like, oh I hope I, you know, I always want to do well. I wanted to, I want to get better every day. Like I really that's so cliche, but that's like my big thing. Like, I just want to get better, like, every day, you know? And so, I knew that if I could come in and do that um, and really execute consistently, that, like, we would get better every day. And, And I'm not saying that, like, the work is even close to done. Like, we still have to get better every day, you know? And so, I just leaned on that a lot, you know? Maybe, maybe when i got there we weren't doing the craziest food that i've ever seen or even today we aren't but i know that we've gotten better every day and mm-hmm. so i
0: you know i hang my cap on that for sure talking about you know that that big document you put together all the plans that yeah. you had yeah. how have you in these last 4 years kind of shaped v mertz where it's still the you know the classic restaurant that everyone knew it as but how have you kind of put your fingerprints on the restaurant
1: yeah i think when if i was to look back at that document now and i haven't looked at it in a little while um it would be very much like, it would sound like I wanted to like I wanted to be the best chef in the city. Like mm-hmm. that's how that's what I was motivated on, you know. And I don't necessarily care about that anymore. Yeah. Um, I I want to do I want to be the best like the Mertz leader and manager that I can for the people that are there now and that will come in the future. That's like my big thing now. Um, when I came back, it's like yeah, I want to win a James. <laughs> that's what I, want to do. I want to have the uh-huh. best restaurant in the city. I want to win a James Beard Award. How do I do it? This plan was all based around doing that, um, and like, and that's the James Beard Awards are powerful. You know, that oh, changes yeah, the course. scope of your restaurant. It's and and it's so cool, and it's so cool that Omaha's getting as much of attention as we are from the Beard Awards. You know, and like justifiably so attention. Um, but now, what I personally care about is like, is V Mertz as good as it can be, and am I doing everything necessary? Are that I'm able to do to make it that way. So I'm more worried now about like, is Natalie learning as much as she can? Is she comfortable? Are we paying employees properly? Are we thinking about their health, their schedule, their t- their time off? Can we produce paid time off? What are we doing for people that are there? And less about how I get my stuff. Uh-huh. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so that's been a really cool kind of personal evolution for me is to to really care less about everything outside of those four walls and really
0: try to make it as good as it can be inside. When you look back, when and why do you think that shift happened? I don't know. Uh it's a good question. I I really came
1: back. One thing I did know, know I wanted to do is I wanted to come back and really focus on hiring. I think that's important. Mm-hmm. You know? Uh it's hard to hire Period in any job. That's you know that kind of translates from business to business. It's just hard to hire really quality employees, and I knew that that was a big focus for me. Is I wanted to hire like the right personality, not like the right knife skills or whatever that is. Like I always wanted the good. I just wanted good people, mm-hmm. nice people, thoughtful people, hardworking people. Um, and so we started there. And then the more that I put myself around those types of people, um, the more I cared about keeping them you know um and the 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 better the food got and, and all of these things add up to like we're trying to cook delicious food still you know mm-hmm. but the, the so the more people that i got with those kinds of similar mindsets uh in the restaurant the more i knew that i wanted to keep those people and then i had to figure out how to continue to make already hard-working motivated people more hard-working and motivated and, and then you kind of have to swing a little bit mm-hmm. you know um and so it's just kind of happened organically over the last
0: couple of years I think that is such a fascinating perspective cuz I think and especially nowadays when you know the term celebrity chef exists and people see you know the TV shows like like Top Chef and stuff where where you know just relatively unknown chefs can become like mm-hmm. national celebrities overnight sure. I think a lot of you know people you know people who go to culinary school or whatever they come up with kind of that you know, that expectation that that's going to be me. I'm going to work so hard. That's going to be me. I'm going to be that guy. Mm -hmm. But then I think there is at some point, you know, like you just mentioned, there's kind of that shift where it's, it's a shift off of yourself and onto the restaurant. It's not about how can I make Jake Newton the best chef possible? It's about how can I make V Mertz the best restaurant it can be, right? For sure. And like, there's only two mics here, so, like,
1: I, it has to be somebody here telling you that. You know? Yeah. But, like, if we could, it would be literally 15 people in here, and that's that would be cool for me. I would get a lot out of that, you know. And, um, yeah, we just want to be the best, you know, and we want to, period.
0: Uh-huh. <laughs> you know? <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Um. Okay, so you come back to v Something that I'm always fascinated is when you take over an established restaurant that has – people have an expectation from it and they know what they want. They know what they like there. You're a guy who comes in, you clearly have a lot of ambition. You have all kinds of creativity going on in your head. How do you find the balance between adding new stuff and kind of bringing the new experiences and opening people's minds to not like just showing them all this new stuff right away, but but like blending the new stuff with the things that they're familiar with. How do you walk that line? Um, Yeah, it's, there's a line there, yeah, Uh Uh, and so
1: I think that, and I've kind of evolved into this a little bit too, you know, because v is kind of known for changing their, our menus regularly, and and we do, do, you know, we do do, there it is, Um, we do that (laughs) often, Um, and so there was an opportunity there to, like, have a few kind of concrete items, you know, like steak tartare the rolls like we always offer the New York strip and actually a few different steak options from Morgan Ranch now um which all kind of come with it always changes seasonally but it's like a pretty like set side of things so people can kind of come into Mertz and if they've been there before they know that okay I like that steak I know that steak's gonna be there because I want people to come back and eat that steak I'm proud of that steak I like that steak I like telling the Dan Morgan story I like using Morgan Ranch and you know so I want that thing to be there um Mm -hmm. Same thing with, like, rolls. I want there to be those little anchor points on the menu where, you're like, you can think about V-Mertz and, like, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll go back because I can get this. And then maybe we sneak a little macadamia and nut mousse in on you, mm-hmm. you know. And then you're like, oh, man, that was kind of fun. Maybe I'll go back again and get those rolls and see what else is new, you yeah. know. And so we've kind of worked the menu into that kind of uh, those couple lanes there where one lane just has three or four items that sticks around. Like, we still do creme brulee on the dessert menu. And it's not outdated, it's not old, it doesn't bore me. In fact, it's the opposite. I feel like that it's timeless, and I think it's the best crème brûlée in the world, and we, we think more about the toasting of that caramel and cooking of that custard than you can even imagine, you mm-hmm. know? Um, and so those types of things, like, kind of keep us disciplined in a sense. Like, we need to, like, that's kind of our, our, our scale, you know? Like, we always have those things for us and have those things for the guests. Mm-hmm. So um, it kind of came naturally.
0: Okay, this is a food podcast, and I saw how excited you just got talking about that creme brulee. So I want you to tease some taste buds, and if someone goes to v and you're going to sell them on that creme brulee, describe that creme brulee to me. Why is it the best in the world? <laughs> um,
1: I, th- I think you'll look at it, and you'll know, which is crazy because it's a creme brulee. Uh-huh. But it comes in like a... What is outdated little, like, boat or gaton, you know? But you see it, and it's golden brown sugar from edge to edge. Every square inch of the top, or, you know, we, we, we try for it. It's actually harder than you think. Is like, you know, that golden brown, and it's even all the way across. There's no blotchiness. There's no holes. There's no dark points. It's golden brown all the way across. And then if you can imagine, like, you take the back of a spoon, and you just tap it, like... That, like, tap... It's almost like squeezing. What is that? What's the term when, like, the the sounds, like, where, you know, it makes you feel a certain way where it's like scrunching up, like, squishing yes. up like a bag or something like that? Yeah, like, yeah. Well, it's like you squeeze a loaf of bread out of the oven and it just has that little crisp. Like, the top of the creme just has its little thin layer of sugar that you just tap it lightly and it, like, starts to crumble and crack into the custard. Man, that's pretty cool. And it's like, I think it's just the sugar. It's like the sugar toast on the top is what we really, you know, the custard has to be set, but just set. So it's not curdled. It's smooth. You have to, you know, you have to buy high quality whole vanilla bean. You have to store them correctly. Cause I don't think people do like in a jar at room temperature, not in the fridge, like all these things. You have to use it quickly. Um, and that's like, you're buying drugs. When you see that invoice, that shit's so expensive. It's wild. <laughs> um, so all of those little things, it's, it, you know, it's a four ingredient dish. And then it's custard and sugar. So if you don't think about all of those things, then I think it's uh, you can it can be a big miss, you know. But we think about that just as we think about like like a piece of toast. Like those are like the things that make me excited as a cook and you know as as a chef uh, is like I think that we toast bread better than most people. And those are like the little details of the kitchen that we like really nerd out about. You know, it's like is it just like that creme brulee top. Is it toasted all the way from side to side? Is it even? um because you can get like toast is always good yeah like i had a piece of stale rotella's bread toast this morning and i ate the whole thing uh-huh. delicious uh-huh. but like you could that's like the difference between like pretty good toast that everybody thinks they know to where like whoa what did they do why is that piece of bread better than i've ever had it when it's just the same bread and butter you know mm-hmm. and so those things just like the creme i think are
0: what we really focus on so you're clearly very proud of a dish like the creme brulee you, you know that 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 is a very very good dessert and it sounds absolutely excellent it's something that i really really want now mm-hmm, yeah. <laughs> and it's not here um, <laughs> it, it, like is there a point w- that you reach with a recipe like that where you're like bam this is awesome this is everyone loves this like universal approval Or are you still tinkering with even like a staple dish like that that you're so confident with? Are you still, those little 20 minutes that you talk about, are Mm -hmm. you using those 20 minutes to tinker with dishes like that as well? Maybe not even that much time, but we absolutely are
1: still tinkering. Like we just had a conversation about the other day because like it's still food, even though the recipe might be tight. Like, what are the eggs doing? Mm -hmm. You know, like is the, you know, we're getting, you know, Plum Creek Farm eggs. What are those? What are the size of the yolks? What's the size of you know, how are they cooking? What's the oven like? Did we have to bake something else in the oven at the same time of the creme brulee? like all of these little things. That's what makes cooking, cooking. Like if, you know, maybe the salt is a little different, maybe all those little things. And, and like the cremes is like the easiest one, but you always are still aware of what you're changing what can be made better. But you go into something like we make bread in house, you know? And so then you're dealing with like a like a literally like a living thing in a sourdough starter, and then you're constant. Like Natalie makes all of our bread, and we're constantly tinkering with that, whether it be one percent more water or one, you know, a quarter percent less salt. Like all of these things, as the weather starts to change, you're just like, whew. you have to <laughs> redefine the recipe every couple of weeks, probably. You know? Uh huh. Um, and that's amazing. Yeah. So everything is always thought about. Always
0: gotcha. Uh, there's a quote on V Mertz's website from. Your sous chef, Amanda Sheeler, that huh. I just, I really, really liked. and I had to ask you about, as we kind of wind down on time here, I, I can't not ask you about this. And she said, this restaurant, speaking of V-Mertz, obviously, holds a special place in my heart. The freedom we have to create, to be heard, supported, and appreciated is invaluable. It truly is a family, and I cherish every moment spent here. There's a lot I want to unpack from that quote, but I want to start here. I'm not crying, you're crying. <laughs> You are the executive chef. You have traveled the world. You have, you know, worked with all these people that you mentioned on this podcast. You have just this wealth of knowledge, and ultimately, at the end of the day, you're the boss. But you have also clearly placed a very great importance on giving your cooks, giving your sous chefs, giving your employees ownership and allowing them to have a voice in the restaurant and in these dishes. How important is that to you to not just be like, I'm the guy, I know what's going on. I've cooked this before, I know what's best, but to having that listening attitude where you are encouraging someone who might be fifteen years younger than you or they've worked in a restaurant ten years less, but they have different ideas, how important is that? It's incredibly important. It's the backbone of what I do. yeah, um yeah,
1: it's I want people to be heard just as I want it to be heard and still want to be heard, you know and i can't I can't demand that of someone else hey, you have to listen to what I say. And at least this is how I think of it. I can't say, you have to listen to me and then ex- not expect them to want to be heard in return. I mm-hmm. just think that's blasphemous, you mm-hmm. know? Um and I, and that's just my preference on life. You know, like i say this all the time. It's like in sports, you know, I was never a guy who you could yell at me if you wanted to, like in football, you know, like you, as a coach, you could yell at me if you want and I'll do it like fine. Or you could just tell me exactly how you want me to do it with a little bit of technique behind it and explanation on why this is better. And then I'll be like, Oh, like I'll kill for this guy. You know, uh, like yeah. we're, we're out here getting it, you know, because he put some time into me. He invested in me. Um, and I think that's important. That was important for me as a young cook. It's still important to me as a as a young leader now, and I'm just trying to start that from the ground, the grassroots, and these, you know, my
0: coworkers. Do you remember when you learned that lesson? Maybe the the first chef that made you feel like that when you really felt heard in the kitchen. Um,
1: let's think about it a little bit. I think I was pretty lucky with who I worked with um, or for as a young cook. Um, sorry, I'm just trying to think of a specific kind of environment. I think I think all the 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 guys I said earlier mm-hmm. did a really nice job of like listening and you know I've kind of just taken a little bit of all of those those gentlemen, you know, into what I do now and then as I read cookbooks, you know, cookbooks are so deep into storytelling, you know. Now you have like the first quarter of the book is like their philosophy on management and maybe mm-hmm. some of it I agree with and some of it I don't and so like how does you know um whomever you know chef x y and z manage their kitchen it's like written down they've wrote about it you know and you know people like Chang and all the other podcasts that we can listen to there's just so much information that you can you can listen and
0: you know and read
1: about and so that's been cool
0: mm-hmm Now, the second part of that quote that I want to hit on quickly is Amanda said, it truly is a family, and I cherish every moment spent here. How do you create a family atmosphere in the kitchen? Because that's a special thing. That's not easy to achieve.
1: Yeah, and uh, it's not all, like, it's still the kitchen. Yeah, it's still a job. Yeah, (laughs) it's still a job. It's not all, you know, lollipops and whatnot. Um, It's still a high-stress, high-expectation very much like com- like competitive environment, you know. Um, but within that are people that really care about each other and want each other to do well while they push themselves forward. And I don't know how that happened, you know. Um, <laughs> Is it just going to happen organically? I, yeah, I think it's, like I said, I think it's people, it's just thoughtful, kind humans being thoughtful and kind to each other and trying to get the most out of their day you know and i don't if i thought about it i might have a, a more eloquent answer than that um but i think i'm just very lucky to be able to work with the people that i am uh working with now and they genuinely like each other mm-hmm. there are moments and days um uh, like we don't have bad days but we have bad moments like mm-hmm. you know for sure it's just it's still work we're still around each other a lot just like you're around you know you're uh family a lot and still have bad moments with them it's just like that you know we have arguments we disagree but it's an open book people tell each other when they're like I beg people to tell me what they think like whether it be great like a compliment or that you disagree with me and I and I hope that I do the same and and that's how we get better you know we have bad moments and we learn from it we get better and we don't go to sleep mad at each other (laughs)
0: that that's the most important thing whether yeah. it's marriage whether it's in a kitchen don't let the sun go down while while you have a disagreement going on absolutely um oh, man i i really wish that we could talk forever like i could just pick your brain forever jake this has been so much fun or we're, we're up against it on time but i just i thank you so much for coming out to the studio today and chatting with me because this was just an absolute pleasure
1: oh i had a blast i
0: thanks for the invitation i hope we
1: can get more time sometime here soon <laughs>
0: This is happening. There's going to be a round two and probably sooner rather than later. So Omaha, you can look forward to that. And until it happens, thanks for eating with us.